The race for 2024 is in full swing. Trump continues to hog the spotlight. No, get those lights off! While many tremble at the thought of attacking him, no one has a problem directing fire at another competitor. Vice President Kamala Harris has slammed the Florida governor as a racist over his state social studies curriculum, with Democrats and Republicans alike happy to pile on. Most people would fold and move on. Curiously, DeSantis has doubled down on his curriculum. Is there something more here than meets the eye? Also, a recent case has reopened the debate. Can Catholic schools remove teachers and students over public differences on church teaching? And should they? And the debate over term limits for our octogenarian public servants is getting old. It's about time someone does something. All this and more on this week's edition of The Loopcast. Bless everyone. Welcome back to the Loopcast, where we talk faith, culture, and politics. It is Tom, Erica, and Josh. And we have another good show ready for us today. And we're going to start with the man that everyone wants to attack right now, Governor DeSantis, running for president here. He's become kind of a popular man to target. And the latest targets have been specifically over a social studies curriculum that he's developed, uh, that Kamala Harris, vice president, has really taken time out of her schedule to attack him on. And I think it's worth kind of going over at this point because some people may have heard of it. Um, this phrase that slaves somehow benefited from slavery is, is the mainstream smear. Both Republicans have used it and Democrats have used it. Um, is there truth to this statement? Um, can we get straight to the curriculum? What's going on here, Erica? So the Florida State Board of Education does have new standards. And uh, as part of uh, Governor Ron DeSantis's attempt to uh, revamp the state education K through 12 and really part of his battle against CRT and wokeism in the schools, they came out with this new 216-page document uh, with the 2023 standards in social studies. And unlike many states, they have added um, special studies for minority groups like African-American history. They have a revamping of the Holocaust studies and slavery all over the world. And there's this one line in the document that says, quote, Slaves developed skills which, in some instances, could be applied for their personal benefit. And it goes on to say that after they were, after slaves are freed and liberated, some of them were able to pull themselves up out of poverty by using skills learned, such as uh, blacksmithing, tailor. All of these sort of uh, crafts uh, are mentioned in the curriculum. And this is this is the phrase that's being pulled out by Kamala Harris and leftist objectors to pretty much anything DeSantis does. Um, and they're saying that, quote, this is Strikes Kamala Harris crazy. actually flew down to Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> right. <laughs> she flew down to Jacksonville, Florida at the drop of a hat to give this big speech where she denounces the curriculum as, quote, propaganda from, quote, extremist leaders. And she's accusing DeSantis of, quote, replacing history with lies. They dare to push propaganda to our children. We won't debate that enslaved people benefited from slavery. Adults know what slavery really involved. And so she went on and on like this for about 45 minutes and, of course, was picked up in all the news media outlets. And it's interesting, if you go and you look at the curriculum itself, this line comes not in the context of discussing chattel slavery in the United States, but in the context of discussing slavery as a worldwide and chronological throughout history phenomenon. So it's talking about 
white on white slavery, black on black slavery, American on African American slavery. And so it's it, it's just it's disingenuous. It is a blatant lie for her to go out there and say that somehow DeSantis is glorifying slavery or saying it was good for people. That's not at all what's happening there. The View had an aneurysm over this, I believe. Whoopi Goldberg said that they want to eliminate black people and everything. And Well, um, did you see what Joey Reid said over at MSNBC? <laughs> She's like, you can't even say slavery was bad now in the GOP. And it's... And, and, <laughs> What made me actually most upset about that clip was she had Michael Steele right there on the studio, right there with him. And he's like, he now, if you remember, Michael Steele was the chairman of the Republican National Committee from 2009 to 2010. And so she makes this outlandish statement, totally ridiculous. She's a lying and she knows she's lying, Right. And he's like, uh, uh, yep, yep, that's right, yep. I'm like, no wonder the GOP got its butt kicked during the Obama era because you were in charge, Michael Steele. What an idiot. But he's been an MSNBC favorite Republican for a long time. So it's like, I guess, I'm, you know, we get over it, right? But then why is Senator Tim Scott making the same claim? Why is he, why is he nodding along with it? Well, because he's running for president and he sees this as an opportunity to take out the Saints so he can be the number two guy. And why is Byron Donalds, uh, the congressman from Florida, also doing it? Well, that's because if DeSantis were to be the nominee, then his lieutenant governor would become governor if he got elected president, right? Byron Donalds wants Trump to get in there so that he can run for governor when DeSantis is done. That's why he'd back Trump. That's fine. Go ahead. Play those games. I get it. But you know the vice president of the United States is lying through her teeth on this, and you were, and if Republicans are parroting her lines, they need to get a swift kick in the butt because it's a bunch of baloney. This is, I mean, like, okay, the question, at, at what this all comes down to is, did did some slaves earn, uh, learn some skills that could have possibly benefited them after they were liberated? Um, yes, it's possible. Yeah, actually, some of them could have acquired some skills. Does state, stating, that's a fact. Does stating that fact say, oh, actually, slavery was kind of good? Um, Heck no. No one ever said that was it was a good thing. I mean, it's it's it drives like me no insane. good faith person would ever believe right. that. Like, that's yeah. just such an unbelievable lie to think that some people would actually think that. So to charge it, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, like Jesse Jackson era, like race baiting. Like they knew that mm -hmm. they could kind of twist this very small part of part of a social studies curriculum, which, by the way, Florida is number one in education and many metrics. But. They found this one little part of the small social studies thing to which they could twist into the race discussion in America, which, of course, as we all know, has been used to the benefit of many politicians. It's one of the most toxic conversations, I think. One of the most toxic discourses we've had over the past, I don't know, 20 right. years. I mean, and Obama really seem like that, that Suddenly they have a Confederate-based, plan-based history book. I mean, it's a bunch of baloney. Right. And you know what's funny, too, is like a lot of people were calling on DeSantis to be like, oh, just apologize, just reword it, just... I actually think that good for DeSantis for not backing down to this. I think that it says a lot more about his character and his beliefs because he actually consulted uh, a doctor. There was a, a very qualified, what was the guy's name? I don't know. Dr. William B. Allen, a very well-respected black historian. And I, I love, he did, a, he did an interview too to kind of counter Kamala Harris's charges that this is, and, and you know, he's a, he's a black man. He is. He has been studying this for years. 
very compassionate, but of course he's conservative, so he's a traitor to his people or whatever. But he actually said, he's like, quote, he said, we need to tell the people's stories the way they told their stories, not to fit our expectations. I mean, and that is just an honest way to look at history is to use primary sources and to let the people tell their story. And men and women who survived slavery in the United States, who were emancipated under Lincoln and then were coming up under Reconstruction, they were they were proud of the fact that they had skills. And the fact is they learned them while they were slaves. And they used these skills as free men and women to make a better life for themselves and their families and their children and posterity. And, you know, William Allen's point was that, look, it is it is dangerous and it is uh, it is absolutely reckless to be throwing this card out there of like all Republicans hate blacks. They want to erase blacks. They think slavery is good. I mean, there that is a dangerous card to play. And it is it's playing with fire. It's reckless. And and Kamala Harris should well, know she better. Knows. She knows. Oh, uh, of course. She, well, that's kind of how she made her way to the White House. So, and it's brilliant. We were talking about this, Tom. Like it's smart. It's dumb, but it's smart because most Americans are going to hear one line on MSNBC about Florida pro-slavery curriculum, and that's all they'll remember. Because it is such a hot topic. So six months down the road, they'll just be like, "Oh yeah, DeSantis wasn't he like he like like slavery, right?" That's just how the public's mind well, works. Well, you say the public. And she I knows that. Half the public and the public that watches. Half the you public's know, lack of and mind it's not works. Just MSC, it's not just MSNBC. It's AP and all the mainstream so-called legacy mm-hmm. media outlets that just parrot all this stuff. And again, that's one of the problems we have in this country where half the country just decides to accept narratives based on absolute con- lies. And so it's like, how do you how do you have a debate on this? It's like. This is not what the curriculum said at all, and you're just going to make it up. Okay, great. Well, DeSantis wanted a debate, right, Tom? He did, yeah. He did invite Vice President Kamala Harris down to Florida to talk about it. Uh, she said, you could stop by on your way to the border. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so she <laughs> declined that invitation, unfortunately. Um, so, the, you know, this is kind of a moment where I think DeSantis shines because he didn't back down. And it was kind of the same thing in Florida, too, during COVID. It reminded me of, like, there was a lot of people pressuring him on the COVID stuff. And he's like, no, this isn't right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So, I don't know. I just, I, I'd like to see more of this from DeSantis. And I actually think the fact that he's not backing down has caused people to kind of, like, take a second look. Like, oh, you were charged with being pro-slavery and you're not backing down. Like, wait, maybe he's not pro-slavery because that's such an insane position. I mean, that was just my two cents on it. But. Another thing that he's being attacked on, and this is something, too, I think that's, of course, near and dear to us at Catholic Vote and as Catholics, it's the pro-life issue. So uh, Susan B. Anthony List has openly chastised DeSantis following an interview he did with Megyn Kelly. And so uh, he told Megyn Kelly that he will always come down on the side of life and promise that he will be a pro-life president, but he did not specify what kind of federal protections for the unborn he supports and emphasized that the country is divided on abortion. Uh, so his response earned a rebuke from SBA president uh, who has called these remarks a dismissal and that it was unacceptable to pro-life voters. What do we think on this? Warranted? Unwarranted? I mean, Mar- I like Marjorie Dannenfelser. She's a great pro-life advocate, and uh, she's been trying to get uh, President Trump to sign off on the 15-week national ban on abortion. Like, it, we should be able to protect unborn children in every state, you know, at least at the 15-week mark, and then if we can increase the protections in other places like Texas and Florida and all that kind of stuff, great. But at least a national standard, bear, you know, start somewhere. Let's get something. 
And so she's trying to do that. Donald Trump, after the midterm elections, um, that went, went kind of poorly for the GOP. He blamed pro-lifers, which is like, excuse me, you know, yeah. like, yeah. um, what? Uh, I think part of it was candidate uh, quality was, was a little subpar, you know, uh, but, uh, and so. Dr. Oz, so, anyone? You know, yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, SBA attacked Trump, um, because like, Hey, why are you blaming pro-lifers for this? And I agreed with her on that. I was like, good. Like, you know, that was criticism that Trump deserved. You know, and so I think she's trying to be fair to each of the presidential candidates because she wants to try to get all of them to commit to a national 15-week ban. And so if she's attacking Trump for not committing to a 15-week ban, then he's gonna, she's going to attack DeSantis for not doing a national 15-week ban. I mean, if I'm DeSantis, I'd be like, hey, I, I got a six-week ban here in Florida. You should be pretty happy with that, which, of course, they would be. But we still want to get a national, you still want a national standard, like, other countries, like you know, throughout Europe, most countries don't allow abortions. You know, in, anything in, past twenty weeks. Yeah, I mean, so it's like mm, certainly twenty. But why can't we 12. do at least you know have the United States land of you know where we believe in the right to life, you know, and liberty and the pursuit of happiness? Why can't we have a national standard as well? So obviously, we'd love it for all children to be protected on the very moment of concession, but at least if we could get fifteen weeks. So I think that's the 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 lens in which she's looking at this. And so I'm going to give her, I understand where she's coming from, I guess. Uh, she's trying to play it fair, so she's not playing favorites, in other words. Right. And can, can I ask them the question I think that we're getting to here? It seems like people have done nothing but criticize uh, DeSantis's chances as president, saying that he's uncharismatic, his campaign's falling apart, he just said to let some people go, he's burning through dollars. Uh, everyone says he has no chance, and yet it seems like people are kind of obsessed with him. It seems like he just constantly is being attacked from all sides at all times. Why do you think people are so obsessed with them? Why do people feel the need to constantly attack? Well, so, you know, in 2016 cycle, everyone was attacking Trump because he, he was the number one in the polls. And so DeSantis could say, well, maybe every reason everyone's attacking me is because I'm also, well, you're not number one. The reason why they're attacking you is not if you're running for president on the Republican side and your name is not Trump, you know, if you're Vivac, you're Tim Scott, you know, you're Heath Hutchinson, any of these guys... And you want to be the, <laughs> the second candidate, right? You want to be second place so that you can be the, t the guy to, to be re re replace Trump in case he stumbles, right? So the incentive for the guy who's, I mean, you've got Trump way up the, at the top, then you've got DeSantis like here, and then you've got seven dwarfs, okay? So each of those guys at like half a percent or one-tenth of a percent or one-thousandth of a percent, they're all going to try to take out DeSantis that they can be that alternative because there's a good 25% of the party that's like, gosh, I kind of like to have someone other than Trump. And right now, like almost all of those voters are going for DeSantis. And there's just a few, at, like I say, at the bottom for the seven dwarfs. Who cares, right? So they all that's have a, an That's a Snow White, Snow White remake right there. There you go. They all are trying to take out DeSantis so that they can be the alternate, right? And Trump, he doesn't have to attack the guys at 1%. He has to attack the guy, DeSantis, who's at like 25%, so that if, if DeSantis, is, the wheels come off his wagon and he slips down to 10, 12, 7, then it's just, then Trump can lift up his hands and say, hey, you know, I'm the guy. And in fact, he had a smart Alec comment, which I thought was pretty funny, uh, talking about it. He was, you know, all, all this discussion about the, you know, the debate in Milwaukee. And he's like, ah, I think it'd be great. Have them all debate. Let everyone debate, in fact, because they're, they're trying to get, 
the 40,000 donors and all the different rules so that they can get uh, participate in the first debate in Milwaukee, right? In August uh, 25 or so. And so he's like, let them all debate. I want to find out who's going to be the best vice president for me. <laughs> ingenious. It's ingenious. Oh, man. It's, the guy has panache. That's what right. And say? that's what I'm right? saying. Like, and, it, and DeSantis is still, I think DeSantis has got, uh, from an issue standpoint, he's a lot better than previous Republican presidential candidates, not including Trump, right? So like Scott Walker, you know, he ran for president and fizzled, okay? So I don't think DeSantis is going to fizzle quite like Scott Walker, but it's still too conventional. Like, it's not just the, like DeSantis was hoping, oh, wait, you know, um, I'm kind of like Trump without the crazy. You know, I've updated my views. I'm more populist. I'm more tough on immigration. I'm more, you know, ready to fight the media or whatever. And I've got the right views. I'm not going to be for, tr you know, trade giveaways, all that kind of stuff. But he's still missing a, something. It's still like you're still running. a, I would call it a conventional presidential campaign. Like now the letter he sent to Vice President Kamala Harris, hey, why don't you come on down to Florida? We'll debate that. OK, good. More of that kind of stuff would be helpful, yeah. mm -hmm. but if he if he doesn't start good. lining up more of those kind of things where he's just playing going on offense, then it, it, I don't know. It, it, in other words, like he's just got to he's got to have something more going for him. Yeah, I mean, I like yeah. him. I love that him. Being I think said, he's a good guy. I, yeah, I do. I mean, I do want to just go back to the Megyn Kelly interview for a second because when that when the SBA announcement came out, the statement came out, I was like, oh, I'll just go watch it. So. I watched the interview. It's I'll link it in the show notes. It's worth watching because, yes, he didn't directly say, I want a six-week ban on a federal level or I want a 15-week ban. But what he did specify was was impressive. And I agree, Josh, like it's too conventional. But he does have, I think he has the idea because he said, as president, I would appoint federal judges and Supreme Court justices who defend the Constitution he would end abortion tourism in the military, which is a really big deal. And that is within the presidential powers. And he said he would sign pro-life laws coming from Congress, but that he just doesn't see Congress getting to that point anytime soon of a 15-week ban. So that pragmatically, he's saying, that's just not going to happen. It's a bottom-up effort. we got to go with the states. So what I appreciated about what he did say was that he wants to get back to the constitutional order, for lack of a better phrase, that this is what the executive branch can do, and I will do it. And if Congress gets its act together and sends me so, a 15-week ban or pro-life legislation, I'll sign it. Here's why SBA is, is still going to go on the attack on Trump and DeSantis or anyone else who won't go for a 15-week ban. They're, the rationale that they have is if you don't say something that you're in favor of, even if it, it's true that a 15-week ban will be extremely difficult to get through the Senate because you have the filibuster. So that's what DeSantis is saying. It's really hard. So why should I commit to something that's probably not going to happen anyway? Here's why. If you support a 15-week ban, then you can say, this is what we're in favor of. And it, there's clarity there. If you don't, then the left will say, oh, you want to get rid of all abortions. Look, there's all, almost all abortions are against the law in Florida. That's what you want for the whole country. You just say, I have 15 weeks. That's something that the American people can go, okay, I can see that. I can see that. If states want to go further, that's fine. So that's the argument. That's the rationale. Even if it's going to be a hard road to get to a 15-week national ban, you at least have it there so you can define what it is you're in favor of and prevent your opponents from being able to define you in a way that's much more politically 
difficult to defend. In other words, if you don't support a 15-week ban on a national level, the other side is going to accuse you of wanting to get rid of all abortions anyway, and you don't get the benefit of actually advocating something like that. You get all the negative only. So it's like, you know, it's, it's it, so I understand it. It's a good point. Yeah. Oh, well, it's interesting. That's why I think your perspective is valuable here, because I think a lot of people look at this and of course, like anyone with a pro-life stance wants to save as many babies as possible, wants to see action on the federal level, but maybe don't understand how difficult that is to do mechanically and or think about the pol political rhetoric positioning in, like you said, like SBA going on the attack there. So it's even interesting for me to kind of hear your thoughts on it, because sometimes I see these things I'm like, yeah, good point. Like, why aren't we a little bit stronger on that? You know, I'd love to see a Catholic president actually be, you know, in favor of putting some limits here. And um, so it'll be interesting to see going forward. I think um, just from my observation, a lot of things I've been reading, I think the DeSantis campaign has shrunk, but in a good way, it seems like they're kind of focusing more on strengths and maybe limiting some more weaknesses. I mean, it is going to be very difficult to capture Trump momentum at this point. I mean, it just feels like he is just so far ahead. Um, well, he's, I mean, you know, Tom, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, look, I've always stopped from the onset of this campaign that Trump isn't, the, it's his to lose. And he's, I just said that DeSantis has an ability, you know, strong governor, purple state. He, he transformed it to be a red state. He's, you know, he's willing to take on the media. He doesn't back down like the, I made that comparison to Scott Walker. Scott Walker would say things, and then the Washington Post would say, you got that wrong. How dare you? Da, da, da. And he would just, Scott Walker just folded like a cheap tent. But at least DeSantis is fighting back, so this is so much better, right? But, yes, there's a lot of momentum right now for Trump, as I mentioned in the, in the loopcast before, that, again, there's still time. There's still time for DeSantis to turn things around and get things to be competitive. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, and for Trump to yeah, screw up, possibly. Really. I mean, and look, I don't. It's it's not like, oh, well, what do you want, Josh? Do you want that to happen? Do you want Trump to stumble and DeSantis to take off? Like, actually, you you know what I want? I want both of those men to give it their absolute best and put their best fight forward, iron strength and iron, and we get the better candidate. That that's what I want. So whatever is you know the case, I'm not playing favorites necessarily. So. Now, like this idea, like, oh, we got to do all this to help this guy or help that guy. And people get all stuck in their ways. Oh, look at this. You know, like three months ago, it looked like, wow, DeSantis was going to was going to you know surpass Trump. And now it looks like the gap is uh, even wider. You know what? You never know. You fast forward to a year from now and you'll be like. Oh, that's how DeSantis pulled it off. <laughs> Or you'd be like, yeah. why did DeSantis even bother running? You know, the, everyone will be a genius <laughs> in 2020 hindsight, but you don't know. Right. I mean, the thing is, That's Hillary right. Clinton had such a massive lead in the Democratic fight for the nomination uh, back in 2008. And people were like, well, yeah, Barack Obama, he's really talented. He's got, got, you know, he's great at giving speeches and people just love his charism. But, you know, he's got no chance. And, you know, and he was it was just like this forever. And then all of a sudden. And he wins Iowa. And then all of well, a sudden, the whole thing changes. And so that's kind yeah. of what DeSantis has ruled before. Boy, if I win Iowa, then I could come into New Hampshire and South Carolina and Michigan and things could change. Maybe. Yeah. Or maybe, I mean, maybe you'll win Iowa and that's it. And that'll be it. That over. reminds me Who knows? of, uh, I mean, I'll never forget where I was. This is for another election, but for the Trump-Hillary election in 2016. 
I was uh, not to date myself, but I was in uh, Goretti Hall at Ave Maria University. And um, <laughs> I'm like watching the states turn red was like on the, just the way that everyone set that up to be like Hillary's going to win. There's no way Trump Trump has no chance, no chance, no chance over and over again. And all of a sudden, slowly, the states are going red, start going red. And then all of a sudden, people are out in the quad popping champagne. Like it was the craziest. I, it was just such a wild night. I'll never forget it. And we'll be in for a good 2024, <laughs> I think. Um, it'll be a very interesting election. But right now, we got to move into back to school. So uh, it's still August. Don't worry. I'm not saying school's <laughs> starting now. Some people actually do start in August, which is it did. Georgia, Georgia started today. To me. I mean, that is summertime. There's no no way anyone should be in school in August. <laughs> but uh, we had some interesting uh, articles come across the desk, and, and, and it begs some larger questions that I think are worth discussing here. And what I'm talking about is, uh, so the Kansas City Star, uh, they, they published an opinion piece. And I want to be very clear, this was an opinion piece. If you read the piece, it was an opinion piece. It was by someone named Melinda Henenberger. Uh, Josh is aware of her work. I had to do a little bit of research after I saw this because I'm like, hmm, this seems a little bit bent. Uh, so the story is about a family that uh, enrolled their kids in a Catholic school uh, in Blue Springs, Missouri. Uh, and so there was a new pastor that came in, Father, Shan, Father Sean McCaffrey, and the parents had publicly and written, uh, written, and then were also publicly opposed to church teaching, specifically on homosexuality. I believe among other things, but I think the main one was church teaching on homosexuality. And they made it very clear. And Father Sean McCaffrey uh, the, and the school made the decision to disenroll uh, their child for this open descent of Catholic teaching. So in other words, it's not like the parents decided we don't want to send our kid anymore. The school itself right. said, you know what, actually, maybe you're... Not Maybe a you're good not a fit. fit for the school. Maybe your kids should not go anywhere. That isn't exactly how Melinda worded it. Um, she was a little bit more dramatic uh, <laughs> in saying that he was ripped from his loving community that he was a part of, but that's essentially what it was, Josh. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of cases that have come up about this. There was a recent case in Indiana, Starkey v. Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Indianapolis and Ron Colley School, um, where there's teachers that maybe are living a life that is uh, publicly against church teaching, specifically in a lot of cases, you know, homosexuality, things like that. Um, and so in that case, you know, there's a, a real precedent for, okay, if you're a teacher, you know, you sign the contract, oath of fidelity to the magisterium. If you violate that, you know, you could lose your employment. Uh, in this case, we're talking about parents of a child um, and the parents, you know, they signed a contract. There was a contract in this case, but a different one. This is kind of the first of a kind. Um, Erica, when you read this article, um, what did it make you think about, you know, the Catholic Church's ability to retain their teachings, obviously, in a way that could come with some punishment? Right. So, I mean, I think punishment is the way that uh, Melinda was was characterizing this in her opinion piece, for sure. Um, in, you know, I worked for a very long time um, as an administrator at a Catholic hybrid academy, and we this issue came up quite a bit because we, too, like this school— um, everyone, uh, the parents who are on staff would sign a covenant very similar that we agree to understand and support the moral and social doctrine of the Catholic Church and know and support the school rules, um, and that sometimes there are situations uh, where parents have sustained complaints to the school and the diocesan administration where irreconcilable differences arise, and then it's in the best interest of both the family and the school to separate. So it's very clear from the get-go when you sign up for this community that there's this standard 
And the purpose of it, and I'm speaking, of course, you know, from the perspective of someone who was an administrator at a school like this, um, that to preserve the community and to preserve the formation that you're trying to um, give to the children and the families within the community, sometimes it's better to separate, all right? Sounds like a divorce. It kind of is like one, except that the prenup kind was pretty not clear at all, people. But yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, reading through the piece, I mean, I was getting kind of PTSD deja vu from my own experiences here. But of course, Melinda, you know, the pastor declined to be interviewed. The school staff declined to be interviewed, as is decorous and right. Um, and she, so she interviewed like the mom in the case who complained about the priest. There's clearly more than just, I disagree with church teaching going on here. There's a lot of personal rancor. And, you know, she said, quote, the priest came in rolling hot, <laughs> yanking books from the school library shelves, including one about a polar bear with two mommies and all of Rick Rorden's work, some of which features characters who are gay, bisexual, lesbian and trans. Whereas I'm thinking, yeah, the priest came in and maybe in a sort of Irish Catholic way, like maybe not with a lot of grace. He was like, these books don't belong here. And he took them off the shelf. <laughs> which um, we don't know. Holly, which we the don't mother, know because we didn't we talk to the because priest. We only got one, we side. Only got one side of the story. We only got the angry mom. She used to be vice president of the school's advisory board, clearly is not anymore. Um, and so one, one starts to piece together reading the article, this sort of acrimonious picture that goes way beyond we disagree with the church teaching on homosexuality. Um, and I, I do think, you know, there was a, a study recently about why, why Americans are leaving the church in so many droves. So because, of course, the charge that comes is, this is why people leave the church. This is why people aren't coming and, to and Mass maybe, anymore. Maybe, maybe. Some mm -hmm. of them, sure. And maybe, maybe. Yeah. But what this survey found, and I will link it in the show notes as well, was that a lot of people start to say things like, well, the church hates homosexuals, so I left. Or, you know, I don't, I hate church hypocrisy because of the sexual abuse crisis. That's a big one. People are like, I left because of that. But when you interview them more fully, you find that it was a personal, acrimonious relationship. There was some kind of personal injury from someone who represents the church. There is some kind of offense given or taken. And then they reach for um, that. And then they reach later for that on, like a weapon. And then they reach for the broader justification of like, I'm on my high yeah. moral ground. And so, you know, Holly goes on in the article, the mom, she goes on in the article to say, well, I'm taking a stand for like these, the rights of gay people. And I think she, Jesus doesn't want us to be homophobes. And you're like, I don't, I don't what? know, Holly, if that's really the cause of why you're giving this interview uh, about how this priest is just a bear in a bullet. I can't talk, a bear in a china shop, <laughs> bullet in a china shop. And so that, those are my impressions from the article. But the bottom line is, a school community, when you're talking about the formation of young men and women, you have pledged to parents and families, you are going to raise them in the Catholic faith. Um, you do, as, as an administrator, as a teacher, as someone who is um, communicating that mission to these children, you have a right to protect that community and that environment because kids are very, it's, it's a fragile time of their lives and it's okay to put them in a greenhouse for a few years. But you have to keep it, you have to keep the greenhouse doing what it's supposed to do. Or you could just bust it all out. Wow, I just, my analogies are Beautiful. suffering today. Beautiful. No, but I mean, I, I, <laughs> let me drink some I more milk. I do want to go back to one point, though. Like, <laughs> there's this idea, like, oh, if if the church weren't so strict or so mean, or that, then mm -hmm. that's why all these people are leaving. And my mother left the church, right? 
and she complains about this. And anytime this comes up, well, no wonder they're like, if the Catholic Church came around tomorrow and said contraception is fine, we love gays, they can do whatever they want, all this stuff, mm-hmm. like you're going to start going to church again? I mean, like, give me a break. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Give don't me a break. So. Yeah. That's a good you know, point. I, could, I just don't believe it. Yeah, I guess it. With the, education, the education thing's tough. It's tough in a lot of ways, but if you want to uh, give your child a specific education and put them in a specific, specific environment, I, I don't want to be coy by saying specific, a Catholic, you want to give your child a Catholic education with a Catholic understanding of the world, with a Catholic foundation, you, you can't do that if the school is just open to every whim from every parent that comes in and well, gives their two cents. Well, here's right? the I thing. Mean, if, you came, if, if this mom, exactly. if this parent had come up to the priest and said, yeah, I got to tell you, uh, I think this is a good school and I'm glad my, my child's going here. I actually don't agree with the church when it comes to same-sex marriages. I think it's fine. And the priest might go, I mean, okay, uh, sure. We're still going to teach the Catholic understanding of marriage and man and woman, you know, and God created male, and female, and the plan. And and if the and if the parent says, I know that's what you do and that's what you believe and that's fine, uh, but I think it's kind of crazy, but whatever. That if that happened, the priest might just say, I mean, okay, you know, sure. But if you go out of your way to publicly say this priest, this terrible, da 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 da, well. Yeah. Okay. Bye bye. What do you expect? Right. Well, another the thing that was telling to me too that it's just sort of a snapshot of the American Catholic school system was that the priest came in, he goes to the school library, and who knows how this actually went down. There's probably a committee. He talked to the committee. He's like, "Okay, guys, we got to get in line with church teaching with the books we're offering on the shelves to our kids. We're going to start taking the hide the pride stuff off the shelves. Hide the pride, yay!" Um, and he probably. Like, the fact that those books were on there in a Catholic school library is the entire problem. Like, they shouldn't, he shouldn't have been in that position in the first place as a priest to have to be like, okay, I know that the priests who have been the pastors here for the last 45 years have allowed this stuff. Or just stuff, didn't know about it or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'm actually yeah. going to pull us. Or didn't know about it because they quality weren't control. aware. Quality control. That's what they we need for been. a Catholic faith. We need some quality yeah. control. Amen. Yeah, I famously told by Mercer, it's like if Coke was in Wisconsin, really terrible, and then in Michigan had a different recipe and was really awesome. That would say a lot about Coke, but <laughs> I, well, I mean, like, remember that one from a couple of episodes. <laughs> right, right. I mean, like McDonald's is just that. not going to be like, oh, you can have whatever <laughs> kind of fries, totally different kind of fries. Like, no, it's going to be the same everywhere. Like, we got to exert some sort of quality control. Like, I get it. Like, and that's what frustrates so many Catholics that. Like the church tends to go completely blitzkrieg over a, let's say, a right wing priest like Father Altman who goes crazy and like, let's say, and and then James Martin goes ahead and does whatever he wants to, and it's like, oh well, we can't discipline on the left. And James Martin, well, he, he what he was saying about these stories is like, ha, they're always going after on the same sex marriage issue. What a you know why why don't they do it for other things like contraception and divorce and premarital marriage? Which came like, up in the story. Listen, mm-hmm. it's not like a cat. It's not like you know some Catholic school has a, a music teacher who's like you know has three wives or something like that. And like if we found yeah. that out, we're like you got to go, bro. Yeah, dude, <laughs> like, yeah. It's like give me a break. <laughs> it's not like well, why are you yeah. okay with that? You know, I mean, it's just like what yeah. what his. He he loves to frame it like this uh, because he wants to attack the church and he wants the church to allow all forms of the LGBT rainbow stuff. And he's got uh, he he wants to impress on the church his uh, 
vision for uh, you know God. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, like Jesse Jackson, but gay. You know, like a little bit of like gay gay baiting <laughs> kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's like, like if you could look at every issue and that's the second time he's come yeah, up on Jesse, this, pod. this is the Jesse, Jesse Jackson, Jesse Jackson on the mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, great voice too. By the way, if you ever go back to some of his speeches, he kills him. Um, he's, yeah, he speaks I, at iambic pentameter. That's why very talented. They it's actually the had him on set. <laughs> they actually had him on Saturday Night Live one time do Green Eggs and Ham. Read the book. I've, was, oh gosh, look it oh. up. To- yes, Total I've riot, seen yeah. that clip. Well, you re- that was, you recommended it on this podcast before, and we'll continue to recommend it. It's a phenomenal clip. I think that was before we were doing video on on this yeah. podcast. He's so. still he's still um, a terrible human, but anyway. Yeah, but Green Eggs and Ham was sick. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, we move on now to the lifestyle loop chat. So uh, this one kind of wrote itself this week. I came across an article. It was actually shared by uh, Mary Margaret Allahan over at the Daily Signal. Shout out, you're she's doing great work. Phenomenal. So I saw this article. Uh, from the Washington Post, it was, and so I was just ready to um, tell you about the story. It actually won a, a Pulitzer Prize, which I didn't know. Um, so it is a story of two teenagers, Brooke and Billy. Uh, they were 19-year-olds when they conceived twin girls. And so the story is supposed to be someone whose life was directly affected by the Texas abortion ban, uh, and then following them through after they had their children, and then to see what their life was like going forward. And so... Uh, Brooke, Billy, and their baby girls appeared um, in this story after Roe v. Wade was overturned, and then now they're kind of thrust into this national debate, of course, as we've talked about with abortion. So the original headline was, this Texas teen wanted an abortion, now she has twins. So, quote from it, if they didn't have the babies, Brooke and Billy both concede that they probably wouldn't still be together. Their teen romance would have flamed and faded, and now, with two children, they are permanently linked. I will save my initial reactions for it but uh erica was the first one i sent this to so erica what was your first reaction to reading this article how did it make you feel yeah i mean my first reaction was just honoring these two 19 year olds who have really taken on a tough thing i mean they had these baby girls they love them the article is so well written beautiful writing um the the author is a pulitzer prize winner so i mean very talented and throughout it, I was just sort of struck by the the mental gymnastics that the writer must have had to do, who is clearly very anti-abortion bans, very pro-choice. I mean, she says multiple times throughout the article, she'll like put the word heartbeat, like the twins had a heartbeat. It's in scare quotes. It was uh, like, why is when, that in scare she, quotes? So Their she ultrasound. received an ultrasound at a pregnancy resource center, actually. At a pregnancy um, resource right center. Right after, because she couldn't get into an abortion facility to end the life of these kids. And then when she said, they were shown the heartbeat of the twins. It was put in in quotations mm-hmm. because yeah, the writer there's puts somehow in there's out there that it's somehow a fabricated noise done by an electric machine or something, which of course is just relic- ridiculous. Right. It's electromagnetic right? pulses. I mean, You're like, yeah. uh, look, if you did an ultrasound on my heart, it would be <laughs> electromagnetic pulses. Like that's right. what that it's is. Crazy. But anyway, so the author has this cognitive dissonance that or this mental gymnastics that she has to do throughout the piece because there's this beautiful story on the one hand of this guy and this girl who got married. They got pregnant out of wedlock. They got married. They're trying to raise the two kids. It says uh. over and over again how Brooke is proud of what they're doing. She, they're, you know, He went to the Army. They have struggles. They're struggling Air staying Force together. Three, yeah. yeah, Air Force. Sorry well, about I, that. I, I, think, I think, though, I think you're, you're wanting to read a little more into it, a little more hope and aspiration than there's there because you look at it as a success story, in, a, in other words. 
And you're like, no, I look at it as an ongoing struggle. Well, story. I don't think there's any dissonance for the writer. I think the writer is, is doing a fore- like a forensic specialist detailing each and every last challenge and suffering that each of these, the mom and the dad are having to go through and how they hate it. And oh yeah, but we do love giving hugs to the girls, but oh my gosh, she yells at me all the time or oh my gosh, why can't he help out more? Or it, 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 you read this article and the, and the average reader of the Washington Post is like thinking to themselves, gosh, it's pretty obvious that the, they did not want to have these babies and therefore... This is the conclusion the Washington Post wants I you understand, to have. So I understand. Abortion should that. be allowed. However, well, I'm just saying no, I, honor. no, but what I'm trying to read in the story <laughs> is to see what's really happening here and what the writer had to do in order to get that message across. And I don't think she did it. I think she just does this. But what she had to do was to discount the humanity of those girls and the, the idea, and this is the, the Judeo-Christian idea, that it is worth suffering and self-sacrifice and trying to work through a marriage that you hadn't planned for, um, there's no there's no mention of abuse. There's no mention of anything like going on there. That's a whole other question. Sure, but, but that, it, you, that that is worth it for, to give a life to these two children. And Brooke even says in the story, she said, "I want to give I want to give these two girls a home where the parents love each other or at least stick together." And that's that is worth doing. But the writer there, does but... not see that. The the writer doesn't see it. And that's heartbreaking. Yeah, there's some merit there, but I mean, the the fact is, like, this is almost like a perfect example, you know, in the left wing media's mind of this is why we need abortion. I understand because that. Right. they uproot their tragic. lives. I mean, give the guy, the man, some credit. He he decides to get a higher paying job, which is good. However, he, it's with the military, and, it, and they ha- then he has to move from Corpus Christi. They move to Tampa. You know, he and his wife and their two little twin daughters. And the problem with that is, well, you don't have his family and her family family. and all your friends. You could kind of like, you know, take a break and say, can you watch the girls and let us go on a date night or whatever? And so then they talk about it in Tampa where she wanting to drop the twins off and like, you know, at at a new friend that she found to watch the kids so they can go on a date night. And like, there's a bunch of weirdos and like a guy holding a bottle. And you're like, uh... Everything about the story just screams eh, 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 danger, everything. And so I think we have to be honest. Like, this is why, you know, it's good that he stepped up and got a higher paying job, but he shouldn't have got one where he would have basically leave his wife to raise the two children and be kind of a prisoner in her apartment. At least if she's back in Corpus Christi, then she can lean on her parents and his parents and friends and family. And there's that extended network, which is so helpful, you know, to help you raise a child. And if you don't have right. that, it gets that much harder. And mm-hmm. so That's I just Especially when you're young. Yeah. Oh, my That's gosh. Yeah. By the time these two twin girls are, let's say, in preschool and elementary school, it'll be another three or four years. And she'll be able to drop them off at school and she can maybe work as a bank teller for a few hours or whatever and do something else. And by that time, she's going to have a few more friends that she'll know because she'll been in Tampa now for th- that many more years and she'll have friends, but it, it, it's still kind of new and she's still in this new town. And so it just paints a pretty bleak picture. And this is my, I guess the point that pro-lifers would say is like the pro boards would say, see, it wouldn't be great if she could have murdered her children. Ah, the worst thing. No, murdering children is not the answer to this problem. 
However, if we had a pro-life culture of life from the get-go, then 18-year-olds aren't having reckless sex. So yes, actually, the children shouldn't be a part of the picture if this is the approach you're taking to how you live your life. In other words, you should be responsible. If we had a culture of life and raising our children so that when they're 18 years old and they're adults and they have adult bodies, that they may, you know, hey, save it for marriage. That's the way, that's the way it's supposed to be. Okay, and I'm going to so interrupt I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you know, that Erica's, they decide. has got something to say. Now, I'm going to interrupt there because you can, we can have that. And I agree that that is what we should be working for creating in our own community, in our communities and in actually in communities out there, you know, going out and helping to support that. But even in pro-life communities, kids have sex outside of marriage and beforehand. No, I know. I know. I know of course. We've, we've all course. experienced that. But the difference between the stories of women, my personal friends whose children have had kids before they got married, it was unexpected. When that happens in a pro-life community, it can be an amazing thing because you have that support. Like I have seen families just drop everything to support the girl, to get the two with, two, with a priest, to get them um, the support that they need. They can live, the mom can live with her family. He can live with his. They end up, you know, sometimes they get married. Right. They, all of that support, you know, they can go back to Intermediary school because they have people. institutions are important, not just exactly. families, right? Right. So like the family, if, if the this church. couple found a church, that would right. help. If, mm -hmm. And also at the end, she started linking in with other military wives. Like, mm -hmm. again, crucial. Like, use right. those support systems. And, and, you know, then you can get a little bit of relief there. Yeah. Right. But if I if I could, because they they follow they followed them around for such a short period of time now. I think it's important. To, first off, whoever wrote this is extremely talented. I was gripped the whole time. Uh, of course, it was jarring to hear the occasional, you know, activist language of like quotes around the heartbeat or talking about, you know, ch they wouldn't use the word children. They were talking about like unplanned pregnancies and ending that and things like that. Yeah, of course. But while what, I, which of course, but but me reading it, like I just read the story of a young man or a boy and a girl having through this event being forced to become a man and a woman. These are all problems that, or these are all stressors that anyone that has a child experiences. So even if you are married um, and you have a child, you experience these problems. Like my son just turned one. Like my, my wife and I still have trouble getting out for date nights from time to time. Uh, we had to discover how to, to still like keep romance alive when you're like constantly sleep deprived and just going from thing to thing and like, now all of a sudden she's a mom and she's, you know, nagging you to do whatever. Or I'm just tired and mad or whatever. Like everything they went through was a very uh, normal life type struggle that anyone with kids has. No, and I so it was, true. It so was true. So categorized true. really well. Okay. So it just her writing it I thought was, was interesting because I basically saw that event turn them into a man and a woman and become virtuous, right? But they're it's growing. Virtuous they, for certainly there's growing pains with it, my point. And but those pains made them virtuous, is my well, point. Well, you could, yes, okay. But my point with, the, my biggest problem with this whole article, though, is, again, I feel like the writer was being like a forensic specialist, detailing all the little slights and miseries and how he just wanted to live a life being a, a skateboarder and hang with his friends till well into his 20s and play video games. And now he's having to do, gosh, a higher paying job and watch his kids. Like, right, oh but my every gosh, kid would sucks. say that. Yes, every my, kid would say that. Okay, but like, 
this, this writer isn't looking for like the redeeming moment either. It's only emphasizing the struggle parts of this story. And so that's, you and I are all, the three of us are able to see that there's some growth there. There's some personal development there, but the writer is not conveying it. We're able to pick it up between the lines, but this writer is just saying, what drudgery for these teenagers. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah. Because like, mm -hmm. the writer's like, you should be able to have consequence, consequence free sex from age 18 to 26 until you finally decide you're, you found the one that's right for you. And then you get married. Then you might decide to have kids when you're like 32 or 33 or something like that. That's the modern Washington Post approved, you know, family creation lifestyle yes. thing. And so that's I what understand. this writer's trying to say. Like, this is so miserable. How do we allow this to happen that these 18 year olds who would have totally would have aborted these two babies? Why can't, why do they have to? And look how terrible it is. I mean, I know you guys right. are finding some good, like little diamonds in the rough here. No, but this writer but is thing, but, no doubt trying to say I know. abortion I is know. necessary. Right. I know. I, I understand all those things, but we're both talk, we're all talking about the same article that we all read, and we're talking about the same things that we're observing. You're just talking about the motivations of the writer. Oh, but she tries. What I would yeah. say, right? But I would say when I read this, I think she actually failed in a way because what she described to me after reading it made me want to root and encourage these two on for their courageous decision, maybe even if it was forced, but to become good parents. And like th those are decisions that everyone has to make. Okay. And so, yes, she's going to put in her two cents about how this would all be gone without an abortion. Yes, but you but can find something my that, view, right? Yeah, you can my find view, some inspiration which I'm talking about in my this. View. Well, right. I'm Matt. talking about my view. I'm not talking about yeah. what, what the general public is going to mm -hmm. be. I think that what they were forced through causes to become virtuous and grow into men and women, and that should be encouraged. Now, the, the, the follow through here is, like you said, community is key. If she was just without a few friends or some support, that would be make a world of difference to her, her children sure. and her husband. And that's why church communities are great because, for example, you know, we get our babysitters from our church community, right? Like we, we want to educate our child, church community. All that's, that's why like the, the solutions we have to offer and then on a policy level, um, we need to, to support people in that position, right? If we can't have a government support a pro-family outlook when people have kids because right now we're struggling as a nation to turn over the birth rate, right? A serious country would do that. A non-serious country would, of course, encourage just aborting children, ending it, and then allowing people to, you know, seek out their dreams, live their best life, whatever. But, like, I read this and actually found a lot of... She almost failed because it was almost too beautiful. And I think... I hope other people saw it that way. Of course, minus the activist language. And when the kids read it, one day are going to be like, you really wrote this? Like, you could have killed us? And that would have been a good thing. Um, so I think that's something to really sit with and think about. So, yeah, Mercer, I had to get that one out there, dude. I know what you're saying. I know yeah. what you're saying. I'm just you saying that you like... could read this. You two could read this article and say, gosh, I got inspired because I could see the progress in these kids. I'm just saying, great. That's fine and all well and good. <laughs> but the other 85% of the people reading this article are going right. to be like, yeah, maybe abortion is not the best, not the worst idea anyway, because, yeah, gosh. So it's, it's a very pro-abortion article. Mm-hmm. 100%. Erica, yes, we sir. The twilight zone. Twilight zone. Well, speaking of, I think you have a clip for me, Tom. This was yes. this was uh, yeah. Just you have to hear this or see this for those on YouTube. S submitted to the producer beforehand. <laughs> um, okay, here we go. When we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce population, more of our children can breathe clean air and drink clean water. 
That was Kamala Harris on July 14th. So we're going to reduce population. The very next day, July 15th, the White House explains that Harris actually meant pollution, not population. But honestly, guys, I think she said, <laughs> the, quiet, she said the quiet part out loud right here. Um, this is she just she said what she meant, and that is reduce the population. This is wow. not new. I she does think support that. I, I she think that's does support like, reducing population. It's like a stretch. Yeah, I think she said what she meant. For 200 years, we had utility. We had started with John Stuart Mill, right? We had um, Malthus, the feminist movement, uh, and then, of course, the 1968 population bomb crowd. But they really, you know, this this elitist view that people really are the problem. Um, and I wanted to point to, to a, an article in this month's edition of First Things uh, by Matthew Crawford, where he talks about anti-humanism. He talks about it more in terms of technology and the the groups of people who are designing things. Like uh, he uses driverless cars as an example. But the idea that this is from his article, it says, quote, human beings are stupid. We are obsolete. We're fragile and we're hateful. And he said, I submit that these four premises are mutually supporting and that together they serve to legitimize and usher in more fully the post-political condition, meaning where we're just ruled by our elites and our technology, we don't have to think anymore, and we can all breathe cleaner air because the climate will be saved because we didn't vote for MAGA Republicans, which is why it's so hot in did August. You see the, um, <laughs> did you see the CNN graphic about the hottest month? Did you see that? No, I didn't. Tell me. So uh, they made a quote graphic. Um, about it being the hottest day in history or something like that, which is already kind of a disputed claim. Yeah. But uh, they used a picture of a field on fire and they photoshopped in like three people and the people they photoshopped in had masks and were wearing sweaters. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you shouldn't wear a sweater to a prairie uh, fire. Yeah. yeah. Unless you want to end it quickly. I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh. But like CNN's terrible. not sending their best, man. They need a new graphic to send. <laughs> CNN. All right. Mostly uh, peaceful. Your well, uh, I mean, Twilight Zone. Yeah, I mean, I guess the Twilight Zone is, I mean, you know, again, I hate to be the guy that points out the hypocrisy because I just know the leftist media just doesn't care. But, you know, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, he's a Republican minority leader in the Senate, and he was at a press conference, and then he just froze. And he froze for almost like a minute. And he just you know, like his brain stopped and people are like, did he have a stroke? You know, what happened? Uh, uh, you know, he later said, I'm fine. I was just dehydrated or whatever. And then he went back and he answered more questions he'd ever done before or whatever. So he's just trying to show people I'm back at it or whatever. But, um, I mean, again, you have these situations like this comes right off the heels of Diane Feinstein. She's the Senator from California. She's I think 178 years old. And so she was, she was sitting there and like in the Senate and like someone basically in A goes, vote I, vote I. And she goes, oh, uh, I, you know, it's just yeah, that was like awkward. totally was bad. asleep at was the bad. wheel. And so you just get the situation where you're like, yeah, you know, you look at the founding documents, these, these great legends of, uh, of, uh, the United States. And it's like, James Madison was like 25 mm. and we worked on the constitution. Some of these other guys were like 28, 29, 30. And they're like, well, we should have like a minimum age. To serve in in the house, you have to be at least twenty five years old. You have some experience. You know, you have to be at least thirty to serve in the Senate. You have to be at least thirty five to be president. Those are all minimum age requirements. Maybe we should have some maximum age limits. 
I mean, honestly, like Joe Biden's 80. Diane Feinstein, you know, uh, I think she's 88 or 92. 89. or I mean, she's, she's 89. Uh, oh, she's up there. Yeah. yeah. It's bad. And so you're like, uh, and, and it's not just one side. I mean, like, uh, you know, Mitch no. McConnell's in his <laughs> 80s. Uh, you know, Chuck Grassley, I actually like him. He's a good senator, but like, dude, you're like 90 years old or 88 or like, and he's running for re-election. It's like, really? I, like, there's I no one else say, in Iowa though, that could do a job? I just don't understand this. I have to say that the Mitch McConnell incident did inspire some of the greatest Babylon Bee headlines of all time. Who can forget, Thanks. are you at a nursing home or the U.S. Senate chamber? Nine clues to look for. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes on. Aid pushes cart through the halls of Congress yelling, bring out your dead. It was amazing. <laughs> They're like, it was, they we don't know what to do with grandpa. Should we send him to a nursing home or have him run for Senate? You know, I mean, it's, it's good. It's good. Seriously. Thank you, Babylon B. It's the it only better. way we can kind of deal with this issue. But like you would think there could be some bipartisan, uh, you know, effort on this. Like. Hey, if you're, you know, maybe 80 is enough. Like, there's nothing wrong with people in their 80s. Like, go for it. Live your life. But, like, retire. Like, do something right. else. Enjoy like, your, enjoy you don't the need to so be hard. in the Senate. There's like, other, there's other ways to avoid your grandkids. You know, you could just, like, play golf or something. Ooh. Or you could not acknowledge them for a long time. Yeah. Oh. Ouch. Sorry, that was a little bit yeah. too close to home. Well, I mean, if oh, you see now, Tom, you're probably two years old. Back then, but during the 1996 yep. presidential campaign, the media made I was not born. Yeah, I was no, born. no pogos. <laughs> There's not even a pogo. In the 96 no presidential campaign, the media made such a big deal about how youthful and vigorous, well, yeah, and Bill Clinton was, and how old, old, old Bob Dole was. Right, <laughs> dude. Both Biden and Trump are older than Bob Dole, and they're, they're gonna both they're both running for president. It's like what in the yep. world, like. The idea of an 80-year-old president, and if Trump wins, he will also end up being 80 by the time his second term is done. Like, that's just- I don't I mean, have to imagine old. that we're living it right now. Mm -hmm. Pre president Biden is 80, right? He's yeah, he is 80. 80 yeah. Yeah. It's time for some youth. It's time for some youth. So uh, my Twilight Zone, so um, it was over the weekend. I was uh, supposed to pick up uh, my sister-in-law to have her get a car- uh, so I was kind of, I had to stay up artificially late. I definitely would not be staying up this late, but I found late on late? YouTube. Uh, I think this was like 1130. No, oh, that's well, late. I was like, yeah, <laughs> dude, dude, I need to, I need to sleep. I am such a night owl, yo. I go, I went to bed like, you know, routinely, but it's summer. So I go to bed between midnight one every night. Oh no. I would love to go. I, I usually hit, hit at like 10, 1030. So I was up. So, uh, so I come across this debate. Give me a break. If, if you guys are familiar with whatever, the whatever podcast, we've <laughs> talked about it on here before. Uh, so Lila Rose and Kristen Hawkins uh, engaged in a debate with this guy, Destiny. And Destiny is a, the guy's uh, a leftist name is Destiny? debater. The guy's name, the guy's is, name Destiny. is Destiny. His, his show name. Probably not his baptism um, name. No, yeah, I doubt guess he not. Name that. Sounds like a stage so name. He, he, th this is going to confuse some people. Uh, who aren't familiar, who aren't terminally online, but basically, um, he's a streamer and he play, will play video games and basically debate people while he streams or he, he's just known to be a really high IQ, uh, wh who has leftist, uh, ideas. And so Kristen and Lila went on and, um, you know, I'd have to say, uh, Trent Horm described it as a mi missed opportunity. I felt like that was probably the most charitable way of putting it. It's kind of a train wreck. Uh, it really <laughs> was seemed odd that there was two on one and then 
it really got kind of nasty at points and it just didn't seem like a very good you know representation of the pro-life argument and so trent horn i guess reached out to uh the producer brian of this show and he said that he'd like to come on to potentially present um a pro-life argument that you know hopefully could be a little bit more successful and so he comes back on with destiny and the twilight zone and all this was i mean i was riveted to this debate partially because i was surprised at how well and how respectful it was done and i thought that both trent horn and destiny's abortion positions were both like light years more humane than the status quo uh trent horns was um more of a natural law argument saying that uh, life begins at conception until natural death, um, which is a pretty classic argument. And then Destiny's is that uh, he believes a person becomes a person when they have a human conscious experience, um, which we didn't exactly get a full definition of, but uh, that happens somewhere between 20 and 28 weeks. So he said he'd be comfortable with a 20 week ban. Um, And so really interesting back and forth from them. I think there were some areas where both of them were really strong and both of them maybe weren't as strong, but um, was impressed that we could have an actual substantive debate on abortion from a intellectual perspective and then also a rhetoric in in debate and logic perspective. And so, yeah, I just, I was sucked into this thing. It was like three hours long. It didn't matter. I mean, I had time to kill, but man, I just was like enthralled by this. And I, it, I really appreciated Destiny being uh, very logically consistent and having a, at least a much more humane stance than most leftists would which of course is you know abortion for any reason at any time up to the second of birth even partial birth abortion and i just wish that we could kind of move the needle that way and be able to engage on an intellectual level like this so shout out trent horn man i know he's been at it for a while with catholic answers uh love to have you on for an interview sometime if you if anyone's listening and knows trent would love to get in touch with him but uh yeah shout out i just thought it was such a cool cool i mean i'm a sucker for good debate but that was really good and so that does it for this week's Loopcast. Uh, if you guys are looking for more, uh, so I did an interview with uh, Charlie Serafin. He is, you know, kind of a uh, Dosaki's most interesting man in the world type guy, but, uh, but Catholic and a great radio voice. Uh, he's lived probably three full lives. <laughs> he uh, was a veteran radio uh, host, a news executive. He also worked at the Texas Rangers and Kansas City Royals in their marketing departments. He's written books. He talked to David Crash on the phone. He put him on the radio station. He got invited to the White House by Ronald Reagan. Um, I mean, the guy is just like one of the coolest guys ever. I think it was kind of a cool moment for me because I felt like I was interviewing an interviewer. And he actually gave me some tips. So if you want to hear me improve in real time, uh, <laughs> I asked for tips during the episode. That's great. And I was, hum- I was definitely humbled a few times. I mean, this guy has like the best radio voice. Fantastic interviewer. Great guy. So. If you guys are looking for something to go listen to, it's right before this one. It's the bonus episode. Um, as always, ways to help the program. We are almost at uh, 300 reviews on Apple Podcasts. I do watch that very closely. That's a good milestone for us. Josh said he'd fire me if we don't get past that. So throw me a few reviews. Um, that's a real threat. It's called uh, tough So love. let's get to 300. Yikes. Um, and uh, yeah, we really appreciate you guys. And we sign us off with uh, Our Lady Guadalupe. Uh, St. Fidelis and St. Thomas More. Pray for us. We'll see you on the next one. Bye, guys.